1: Hello and welcome to the Mobilities and Methods series. This series is hosted by the New Books Network in association with the Mobilities and Methods Lab at the University of Illinois at Chicago. The Mobilities and Methods Lab and New Books Network Partnership provides a platform for authors, readers, and their interlocutors to engage closely with questions of mobility and movement. I'm your host, Aliza Erja. Today, I'm joined by Eray Çaylı, the Leverhulme Trust Early Career Fellow at the European Institute at the London School of Economics. We'll be talking about his book, Victims of Commemoration, The Architecture and Violence of Confronting the Past in Turkey, recently published by Syracuse
2: University Press.
1: Thank you very much, Eray, for joining us today.
2: Thank you very much indeed, Alize. I'm very happy to be here and uh, looking forward to our conversation
1: yeah i have to say i it's a really special pleasure to have you here because long before this book i've been following your public um writings which span architecture geography and anthropology so first off i was wondering if you could tell us about this interdisciplinary background and how it informed this book project
2: thank you so much for these kind words um they mean a me, especially coming from a scholar like yourself, whose work bridges exactly those disciplines uh, to fill an important gap in our knowledge uh, about um, urban renewal and how uh, marginalized communities respond to urban renewal in Istanbul. You're right that my background is interdisciplinary, This book is based on my PhD um, at um, University College London, which was co-supervised by uh, the School of Architecture and uh, the Anthropology Department. Uh, now, since uh, 2012, uh, I've designed and taught courses on uh, the spatial and visual politics of violence and conflict um, at architecture schools, <laughs> art history departments, and most recently at uh, what one may call a um, area studies department. That is uh, the European Institute at um, LSE, London School of Economics and Political Science, where I work since um, 2016. Um, It's a department that also has a kind of strong um, political science and international relations uh, component. My research articles um, have appeared mainly in geography journals, (laughs) further diversifying uh, that interdisciplinary mix. And um, in Turkey, I've uh, written regularly for uh, non-academic publications um, on architecture and urbanism. My uh, pre-PhD Formation um, uh, further complexifies things as I had a, um, I did a B.Sc. and an M.F.A. in design disciplines. <laughs> so um, Indeed, the story of this book um, actually began uh, during my master's, um, which was in Stockholm. Um, halfway through it in um, 2009, I won a scholarship to attend the summer school Uh, on memorialization in Lithuania's capital, Vilnius, of all places. And here I encountered an incredibly uh, rich, multi-layered history of violence and memory um, and a a, a kind of profoundly complex landscape of uh, memorials uh, that sort of, uh, for me, uh, shed light on what was then happening um, in Turkey. So in Turkey, uh, discourses of confronting the past, um, geçmişle yüzleşme, and Reckoning with the Past, geçmişle uh, hesaplaşma, uh, that had been initiated in the mid to late 1990s by activists and intellectuals were in the process of becoming um, mainstream uh, in the late 2000s, early 2010s. The AKP government had just begun to speak uh, this language of confronting the past, reckoning with the past, as part of a series of um, democratization initiatives uh, called Açılım uh, or Açılımlar, um, in plural, uh, through which it promised to address um, long-standing kind of issues affecting Turkey's historically marginalized communities, uh, such as Alevis, Kurds, uh, non-Muslims. Histories of state-sponsored violence um, were prominent among these issues, um, and members of such communities and their political allies had uh, long been um, leading campaigns uh, for uh, the transformation of sites of violence, uh, state-sponsored violence, that is, um, into memorial museums. Uh, And often actually referencing the case of Germany and Holocaust memorialization at um, such sites as concentration camps and the like. And the government, now, as part of its uh, kind of Achil as as part of its uh, kind of uh, democratization initiative, was now having to engage with these uh, kind of campaigns. Um, and, and this book obviously discusses um, the three sites that were really kind of central uh, to these uh, campaigns for memorial museums at sites of state-sponsored violence. And these sites are the Ulu prison in Ankara, uh, where leaders of Turkey's <clears throat> 1968 student movements were hanged under the influence of the military. Um, the Arbukir prison, uh, where pro-Kurdish activists were tortured by the 1980s uh, junta. And uh, the Madumak Hotel in Sivas, uh, where an arson attack um, targeted the participants of an Alevi-run culture festival in 1993, uh, before uh, the eyes of an inactive law enforcement uh, and thousands of uh, mostly supportive uh, onlookers. So all three sites, um, again, have been subject to uh, campaigns for memorial museums. So you know, architecture, obviously, uh, was a, a prominent kind of medium through which uh, these discourses of uh, confronting the past, uh, reckoning with the past, uh, had uh, developed and were now being kind of thrust into the mainstream. Yet, um, architecture remained quite uh, posterior to these kind of discourses or kind of somewhat external to the critical debate on these these kind of uh, policies of Açulim, of confronting the past. Um, Sites of violence and what they could architecturally become um, had uh, yet to be really kind of taken seriously as a departure point for uh, politics of confronting the past, um, as a kind of realm of memory politics uh, unto itself. And instead, I felt that uh, these sites were largely treated, or at least architecturally speaking, uh, treated as a kind of illustration of memory politics as um, something that develops um, elsewhere, right? Um, and, and this was especially the case in, in scholarship, in, in you know, in terms of the debate uh, that was taking place among public you know, intellectuals. Now, if I'm Am I allowed a, a detour? <laughs> <laughs> of course. Um, yes. So <laughs> something that is, Something that's not in the book. <laughs> Hopefully, this will, this will be interesting for the for the listeners. Um, to return to Vilnius, where that summer school was taking place in 2009. Um, you know, we had, uh, obviously I was a master's student back then, I was attending lectures by some really prominent names associated with um, the kind of <clears throat> the boom in uh, in Holocaust memorialization that took place um, in the post-Cold War period. Some names like um, Horst Hochheisel, uh, Esther Schalev-Gertz, uh, but the, the program of that summer school also involved field uh, kind of visits and fieldwork, really, uh, to numerous sites uh, of memory. And um, this is where I encountered really interesting kind of parallels uh, with what's happening in Turkey. Um, Lithuania, obviously a post-Soviet uh, country in the 90s, in the 2000s, um, had been interested in questions of memory, more as, a, I guess, a way of uh, boosting self-confidence, right? But now uh, with uh, the integration into the EU, which obviously was relevant to what was happening in Turkey, now a, a kind of a, a, a more of a concern for self-reflexive, engagement with the past was coming about, particularly in terms of Holocaust. And the the, the country, I felt, was kind of questioning its own complicity in in the Holocaust. Um, And that was interesting, which obviously, again, was linked to EU integration, and in that sense linked, in a way, to what was happening in Turkey. Um, Simultaneously, I felt that there was this kind of really interesting um, revival of imperial history which um, it turns out Lithu- Lithuania uh, also has um, in terms of its kind of grand Duchy of uh, of Lithuania, uh, which was kind of this uh, political kind of formation, a a country really, uh, that existed between the 13th and 18th centuries, which again, in Turkey, you know, on the one hand, you had this kind of um, confronting with the past, this kind of discourse, but also obviously an an Ottomanist revival. So I was really interested in how these kind of practices of uh, confronting, you know, quite quite dark pasts in terms of, you know, state-sponsored violence were kind of perhaps um, happening, unfolding alongside uh, a kind of um a redefining of of of nationalism through and by reference to kind of imperialist uh pasts right so um so that really uh kind of resonated with me and um but but then i also saw really interesting memorials and talked to their makers where you know it had nothing to do with uh the kind of communitarian uh, um, affiliations that were that were uh, accustomed to uh, when it comes to state-sponsored violence i encountered for instance um uh, a Soviet era monument with uh, kind of quite muscular male uh, figures in it, um, which, you know, amidst all the post Soviet era monuments uh, being demolished when Lithuania became a kind of independent country, obviously they wanted to kind of leave that past behind. Um, a group of um, um, gay activists. Actually, claimed that monument because basically it looked nice, (laughs) and this kind (laughs) of uh, really interestingly, this kind of symbol of you know Soviet era fraternity became uh, a symbol of uh, became appropriated as a symbol of um, you know uh, gay solidarity, and so this was really interesting. Another such case was you know a group of kind of artists campaigning to build a monument to Frank Zappa. In the nineties, okay, <laughs> because they thought, you know, why why don't we have our own monument to you know someone that we like? If if you know Lithuania is now becoming liberal and independent and a, and a kind of post Soviet country, we want our own mo- monument. And they kind of you know, and each of these campaigns were really painstaking, actually, but they were kind of non sectarian. They kind of showed how. And bear in mind, you know, this is, uh, again, the late 2000s when you didn't yet have these kind of, m- m- kind of movements that we have that are really also interesting and complex, like, you know, uh, roads must fall, you know, various fallisms, etc. Um, but, but these really were kind of uh, cases where I saw, you know, people can actually use memorialization as a way of organizing and mobilizing. Right, And in a way that is kind of future-oriented, in a way that is not necessarily kind of ethnically based, uh, in a way that is actually generative, or at least that actually showed how memorials can be generative of, uh, of politics. The very processes by which memorials are built, designed, you know, campaigned for, can be generative uh, um, of, of politics rather than just reflective uh, of, of politics. So I, I kind of wanted to... Uh, approach what was happening in Turkey uh, in that uh, same light. So that's really my interdisciplinary journey. Uh, you know, I guess a few characters have become more pronounced since uh, this unlikeliest of beginnings in Vilnius in terms of this particular book. Um, first, uh, this kind of approach that I have that considers materiality and spatiality again, as not simply kind of reflective of uh, of politics, um, but rather generative of politics, uh, which is what my formation in design and architecture um, has given me, uh, this kind of object-oriented approach. Um, secondly, I think um, I've... Gotten from um, anthropology, uh, you know, I've learned from anthropology. Gotten out of anthropology, a, a kind of uh, hands-on, ethnographically informed, uh, fieldwork-based uh, kind of approach. Um, in terms of geography, why I've published mainly in geography uh, journals uh, because I'm still interested in you know quite geopolitical uh, kind of uh, questions, and um, I obviously use a material and spatial focus to engage with quite you know systemic and structural political questions, and that's why I found a home in a way uh, in geography, and the final kind of characteristic, I guess, is one that resists uh, the traditional area studies appetite uh, for regional exceptionalism, uh, which is why the story of a book on Turkey uh, like this one uh, could begin in Lithuania and why I've um, actually been fortunate enough over the past decade or so to, you know, design and teach uh, my own courses on violence and conflict uh, that have really, you know, haven't had um, a, a focus, a regional focus on the Middle East or Turkey as such. Um, and yet, obviously, have always been grounded in the kind of situated uh, perspective uh, that I'm able to offer as someone who hails from, um, works on, and endeavors to uh, speak uh, for uh, that region.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, that is incredible. I would have never guessed that you know, maybe in a way the origins of this book would be in Vilnius. So, you know, you also show us that besides moving between disciplines, just moving in general can generate um, thinking about a place, even, you know, if we're from there. And, you know, I want to pick up on the built environment, which you mentioned in passing. Uh, And, you know, I'm really curious about um, how you know, you use built environment as something generative, but in specific um, generative of violence, commemoration and victimhood. So um, could you elaborate on that
2: link? Sure. Um, Perhaps I could begin by answering um, through references to, uh, you know, some basic information um, about the um, three sites that I discuss in this book. So uh, my fieldwork began in 2011 um, when campaigns for uh, the kind of memorial museums I just mentioned reached uh, unprecedented visibility and actually began... um, um, yielding um, practical results. Um, recall that this was a time when Turkey was still seen globally, you know, unlike now, uh, seen as a beacon of democracy in the Middle East, right? Um, I put that in quotation marks, with government representatives, um, you know, being invited to publish, you know, opeds uh, in in the Guardian, in you know, Newsweek, and the like. Um, in 2011. Uh, The authorities turned Ulucanlar prison into a memorial museum proper. Um, They redesigned the Madumak Hotel, the site of the Sivas arson attack, as a commemorative slash educational space uh, called the Science and Culture Center, with a memory corner dedicated to the arson attack as its centerpiece. Around the same time, um, senior um, cabinet members, including the then um, prime minister, you know, Erdogan himself, pledged uh, to close the Diyarbakir prison um, and, or even, you know, turn it into a museum. Although uh, this never materialized. So the three sites I discuss in this book um, are united in being at the heart of these campaigns for site-specific memorial museums, but also have their differences uh, in terms of what they have or haven't become. Um, Ulucanlar, again, is a museum proper, open to the public. Uh, the building uh, where the Sivas' arson attack took place um, is now open to the public as well, as a kind of you know, public institution. Um, and its centerpiece is a memory corner, but it's not a museum. The uh, Diyarbakir prison remains a prison. Um, but um, activists, uh, and this is really crucial, um, continue to annually organize commemorations in Sivas uh, that center around the site of the arson attack. And at the time of my fieldwork, a similar mass commemoration was also taking place in, in Diyarbakir So in Turkey, um, uh, one of the kind of prominent ways in which these sites have been understood uh, and I guess this holds for other similar sites in uh, the rest of the world as well. Um, is kind of to focus um, exclusively on what they function as, uh, what they've become. You know, whether you know have they become memorial museums, have they not become memorial museums, and then kind of to appraise these sites based on those kind of um, you know uh, representational merits on on how they represent the past, etc. Now, obviously, activists uh, are absolutely right in prioritizing this kind of a focus. That's what their campaigns are, uh, by definition, for uh, and about. Um, and they're you know keen on achieving this museum outcome. and And obviously, there's nothing absolutely wrong uh, with that. But um, critical debate, however, uh, around uh, these kind of sites, I think, uh, falls short if it abandons. A site like, um, say, uh, the um, site of the Sivas arson attack, purely on the basis of it's not having become a museum proper. Um, It falls short because it kind of overlooks that for better or for worse, memory politics continue to develop and unfold at at this kind of a site, regardless regardless of its um, prescribed function. Um, So this is something I wanted to kind of shift focus from. to really kind of look at what's happening at these sites, um, the the kind of daily uh, goings on at these sites, what kinds of people visit them, particularly using, or you could say capitalizing on the fact that um, two of them uh, were now open to the public, right? Um, So I wanted to also use this kind of functional diversity, so to speak, that characterizes these three sites uh, for taking stock of the... Um, varying kinds of political work uh, they generate. Um, I wanted to approach the built environment as two things, mainly. First, as a medium, again, going back to what I said uh, earlier, as a medium for organizing social relations, right? And secondly, as a technology, right? So um, regardless of whether, again, a site uh, of, of violence becomes a museum or not, uh, it kind of serves as a, a, a medium for organizing social relations in ways that uh, cement or contest uh, the violent history. I discuss, for example, uh, in the book, uh, how in transforming both the former Madama Hotel and Ulucanlar uh, prison, the authorities have sought uh, to leave the violent history behind and to progress society into what's supposed to be a, a kind of brighter, more democratic future. And at both these sites, there's a kind of quite salient air of provisionality uh, that the authorities present to the public as a kind of democratic quality. So visitors to these sites, Ulujana and, and uh, what used to be Mademak Hotel, uh, which are again now open to the public, are told by employees that each site is an unfinished project, and that visitor feedback is being collected so that they may be improved, these sites may be improved moving forward. And this kind of, I think, resonates with, I know of your interest in delays, right? These kind of delays in in these kinds of state-sponsored projects that serve as a platform for producing and enacting uh, political power in their own right. So there's a kind of similar thing going on there. Indeed, there are actually empty floors in the former Madamak Hotel, for example, which are now presented to visitors as evidence of the authorities' openness to the public's suggestions as to what may become of this site in the future. But the crucial thing is, um, let alone um, helping to move society towards a Better democratic future, I found that these emphases on provisionality actually extend the violent history into the future. Um, For example, um, this kind of emphasis on provisionality prompts far right groups to speculate that the site will soon become a place of Alevi worship closed to the wider public that it's gonna be kind of closed, it's gonna be exclusive kind of dovetailing with a kind of conspiracy theoretical mindset and a conspiracy theoretical reading of the arson attack that sees it as a kind of external plot orchestrated by uh, by powers that are against Turkey's unity. And that actually um, obviously problematically sees even some of the victims as pawns in this kind of conspiracy importantly the built environment is also a technology Um, and it's a political realm onto itself by virtue of its being a technology as well. Um, Again in the book I discuss how um, As seemingly mundane an act as painting walls can turn out to serve as a technology of contending with violence and uh, in quite unexpected ways. The one kind of specific example I have in mind uh, is uh, from the 1980s Diyarbakir prison, where a kind of um, prominent torture method was to force political inmates to paint the prison's walls with racist nationalist slogans and symbols. The torturers often spoke of the prison as a school. And the forced painting uh, was for them a method uh, of educating the prisoners about becoming better Turks um, or, or kind of Turkifying them. And this technology was then repurposed by actually four prisoners who killed themselves by self-immolation uh, in May 1982 to protest against uh, the torture that was taking place there? Um, these prisoners had gradually and kind of secretly stockpiled, um, you know, enough of the uh, kind of combustible uh, materials, um, you know, paints and varnish and the like that were, you know, that that, that they were used, forced to use uh, to paint the walls. Um, now, this was obviously a an act of defiance against the anti-Kurdish violence that was taking place in the prison, and you could say beyond in Turkey. Um, But also it actually, and this is what veteran prisoners uh, kind of uh, have told me, it also had quite uh, direct practical consequences for uh, day-to-day life in the prison. The policy of forced painting um, um, came to an end uh, after uh, this kind of act of self-immolation because the authorities began to fear uh, further instances of such self-immolation so they kind of um, stopped this kind of policy of forced uh, painting and therefore you know uh, this kind of form of torture was was eliminated now, in the late 2000s, when you had you know discourses of confronting the past uh, beginning to figure prominently, and when the, the kind of transformation of the Arbuckle Prison into a memorial museum was becoming a, a kind of uh, the subject of a debate, the authorities wanted to show their willingness uh, to move on from the violent history by collaborating with the local university's art education department uh, and students from there, um, whom they got uh, to uh, decorate the prison's outer walls. The art students were told to uh, decorate the outer walls of the prison with duplicates of um, Miro's and and Picasso's uh, well-known paintings, as well as education-themed quotes from European figures like uh, uh, Balzac, etc. Survivors of the prison, when I talked to them, found this really kind of reminiscent, problematically, troublingly reminiscent of how the torturers actually had forced them to paint the inner walls um, as part of their kind of indoctrination and in Turkishness. So there are kind of technological aspects, if you consider, for, in- for instance, this idea of you know, painting the walls, etc., as a kind of technology, there are kind of technological aspects of the built environment that uh, serve as um, political mechanisms in their own right uh, that kind of... Um, bring along their own uh, political meanings uh, that they've acquired through through history, and not least, obviously, uh, histories of violence. Uh, there's a final kind of instance uh, which involves, I don't know if this actually qualifies as built environment, but it, it involves a kind of apricot orchard um, you know, insofar as orchards are planted, right, mm-hmm. uh, they're not natural Altered environments. To
1: the environment. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> exactly,
2: exactly. They're not natural environments, strictly speaking, but you could call them actually built environments. Um, without wanting to give any any spoilers, you know, I discuss in the book an instance where an apricot uh, orchard prompts an Alevi activist to kind of interweave and actually unintentionally, interweave the Sivas arson attack with uh, the Armenian Genocide, uh, which obviously is a a kind of history of genocide that um, has uh, kind of entangled Turkey's histories of modern capitalist development in racial uh, nation building. So I think, yeah, in short, I think uh, the politics that kind of uh, is inherent in, in the technology uh, that constitutes built environments can also serve to make trans-ethnic non-sectarian connections like, you know, between the Armenian Genocide and, you know, the Sivas Massacre uh, that are otherwise each kind of assumed to uh, be on only of concern to a particular uh, community.
0: This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At sax.com it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch, find inspiration for your new vibe every day at sax.com.
1: Wow, Eri, thanks so much for this really rich response. Like you show us that you know, if we take special... Uh, lenses seriously, you know, we can also understand the temporal dynamics between violence uh, and commemoration, as well as how spaces actually speak back and generate new forms of politics. So I really appreciated that. And it's very obvious that this comes out of a very rich um, sort of spatial ethnography. And my next question is about that. So no, you know, I was really struck with your ability to move between and stitch together different spaces like prisons, public squares, museums, among others that you just mentioned. So could you speak to the methodological approach that led you to this multi-sided and interstitched spatial ethnography?
2: I'm really happy to hear you refer to the book as a spatial ethnography. Um, yeah, I guess... One of the modest ways in which I try and reimagine ethnography involves um, situating space as ethnography's uh, protagonist, you know rather than the usual approach of individuals uh, being such protagonists. I try to um, bring to the fore the histories of modern violence that constitute space uh, and yet are often also concealed by space. And since these histories, um, by definition, uh, build on and um, unfold along nonlinear trajectories um, that sort of uh, traverse and interconnect multiple spaces and times, um, you obviously have to, you know, um, kind of stitch together these different kind of temporal, actually, and spatial sites. Um, <laughs> In terms of the specific examples, uh, the kind, in terms of the spatial you know, types uh, that you refer to in your question, uh, you know, public squares, prisons, museums. Obviously, you know, um, the links between these have been have been made um, by various thinkers uh, throughout the 20th century. Uh, uh, you know, from uh, Georges Bataille through, you know, Michel Foucault, um, you know, George Agamben, Tony Bennett, um, who really have uh, kind of pointed out the relationship between, you know, slaughterhouses, museums, prisons, public squares, and the like, as kind of technologies of rule by bodily discipline. Right. Um, my approach obviously owes a great deal. Uh, to this kind of um, thinking and this kind of scholarship. But I also differ from it in certain ways. And I suppose the main difference um, has to do with how I uh, do not see the politics of these kind of spatial technologies as impacting everyone equally. And uh, how I instead kind of focus uh, their kind of politics of bodily discipline on um, mutually contesting claims, mutually conflicting claims, and the work that is put into enacting those kind of political claims. So, um, in in kind of approaching uh, these kind of sp- disciplinary spatial technologies, uh, and and and how you know emphasizing how their consequences aren't even. Obviously, I'm not just kind of. Um, emphasizing unevenness for emphasis sake, but uh, also actually to say uh, it's it's really to say that their oppressive politics is also not inevitable, right? So there are other ways of kind of using them and, and responding to them. Again, to uh, maybe refer to um, concrete examples from the book, um, you could take the Sivas arson attack um, that took place in 1993, uh, which was a period when uh, Turkey was supposedly witnessing the expansion of the public sphere. Um, You know, it was supposed to be recovering from the violent uh, coup that took place in 1980. Um, The culture festival uh, that was targeted in the Sivas arson attack was organized by representatives of the Alevi community, very much as an attempt to take part in this expansion of the public sphere. That was supposed to be taking place in the 1990s. The festival um, had actually previously been organized elsewhere. This was the fourth time that the festival was taking place. But previously it had been organized in the countryside, in an Alevi village called Banas. Um, And it had a kind of exclusively Alevism related lineup of events and contributors. Now, for the first time, the festival was being held in central Sivas, and actually the program um, and the participants were not only Alevism-oriented. It was very much this kind of staking of a claim for publicness and doing it spatially, right? Kind of opening up to central Sivas, etc. That actually was targeted in the arson attack. Um, highly mediated images of you know thousands that converged around the Madama Hotel at the time of the arson during the arson replaced the festival organizers and participants as the correct the ideal public that constitutes the publicness of public space and um, uh, um, as a result of this uh, and atrocities like this this arson attack. Actually, many Alevis uh, fled to Europe, and for the first time, um, they found the opportunity to organize formally, officially as Alevis, especially in Germany to begin with. Once they grouped in or regrouped in places like Germany, they actually began to travel back to Sivas to commemorate the arson attack, but now were cast as foreigners. Because they were based in Germany, because they actually fled the violence, right? And, and now that they were based in Germany was kind of um, re- repurposed, exploited as a, a kind of uh, a fact almost that or uh, in terms of the idea that they were foreigners, right? Not unlike the foreign powers that were supposedly behind such violent episodes as the arson attack itself. So, quite a cyclical kind of uh, reasoning that we encounter here uh, that actually characterizes you know, conspiracy theoretical thinking. So, but once again, one clearly sees how organizing and mobilizing is what spatial uh, technologies of bodily discipline uh, are selectively and unevenly wielded against, right? And unpacking this kind of uneven politics of places like public squares, public space, museums, prisons, requires that we traverse multiple spaces, uh, like those very spaces, but also, you know, um, multiple geographies like, you know, Sivas, central Sivas, the village of Banas, um, the Mademak Hotel, uh, as well as, you know, cities uh, in Germany. Uh, All of which uh, are actually places I um, did fieldwork in and kind of discuss in this book.
1: Yeah, that's fascinating. And I love what you said at the beginning uh, about taking space as a protagonist and you take it as not a static protagonist so to speak but one that circulates uh for example throughout the book besides you know the actual physical spaces and spatial technologies um you pay attention to artwork media as well as everyday interactions um to understand um what space does politically so i'm curious about what circulation does for you methodologically as well
2: this is a really crucial question, and I'm glad you bring up artworks and images, um, because obviously, um, you know the sites I discuss in this book are such that there's no way of discussing them without taking into account the ways they've been mediated uh, visually. All three um, are associated with events that took place in the neoliberal era, that gradually also beca- be- became uh, an era of, you know, breaking news instantaneous communication, uh, image saturation um, in Turkey. The Sivas arson attack is the obvious example <clears throat> where you know th- we have a, a kind of atrocity that was um, near live broadcast. Uh, um, and not only that, but also the, t- the TV network reporting from the scene, uh, and this is what I argue in the book, also played an active role <laughs> in instigating uh, the atrocity. Now in terms of Ulucanlar, prison Uh, footage from uh, a a crackdown that took place there in 1999 on inmates uh, protesting against the introduction of solitary confinement was uh, featured similarly uh, prominently in the media. If you grew up in the 1990s, uh, Turkey, uh, in in Turkey in the 1990s, like I did, and especially if you're coming from a family that's uh, in one way or another affected by such political events, these visuals are forever ingrained in your memory. In your childhood memory, the Arborkir prison was evidently um, um, less exposed, it, you know, due to its being prison, uh, less exposed to the media. But the fact that the torture of Kurdish and pro-Kurdish uh, political prisoners was, was taking place here simultaneously with a supposed opening up of Turkish society and politics in the ma- mid to late 1980s um, meant that those trying to create awareness about the torture. Uh, we're actually met with disbelief among significant sections of Turkey's intelligentsia. Um, it was kind of like, "Oh, wow! I think you're imagining this." You know, there are actually actual events, actual quotes uh, confronting uh, Kurdish activists trying to create awareness about the Erbakan prison, uh, where Turkish. Uh, kind of intellectual say, well, you're just imagining this because obviously, you know, we're, we're way past the coup now. Turkey is democratizing, etc. You know, so this kind of discourse of democratization was already taking place in the late 1980s. So. Whether in its kind of saturation or in its absence, mediation, and especially visual mediation, was already a defining feature of uh, these sites or, or the histories of violence that took place in these sites. So my ethnography features not only the sites themselves, but also how they've been portrayed uh, in visual culture, and um, it features, for example, a series of drawings by Zülfikar Tak, a survivor of Diyarbakir Prison, filmmaker uh, Muraz Bezar, who co-wrote and directed the film uh, Mündit, where Diyarbakir Prison uh, figures prominently. Um, I discuss you know, works by uh, Ulujanlar survivor uh, Murat Özçelik, who produced a documentary about the 1999 crackdown, and Medet Dilek, uh, who produced a documentary about the Sivas arson attack with footage from mainstream media as well as uh, from the personal cameras of Alevi residents of the city who kind of sort of um, counter-documented the events from their own uh, marked uh, situated perspective. So the, the kind of profoundly mediated nature um, uh, of these sites. Obviously also um, <laughs> renders everyday interactions with these sites that took place today highly complex and multilayered uh, because everyone, virtually everyone, again, uh, who's witnessed the 1990s, uh, you know, has some kind of mental image of the, the kind of violent events that took place uh, at these sites. This, of course, you know, uh, this kind of supposed familiarity the fact that, you know, you could say nearly everyone who's seen, who's lived, experienced the 1990s in Turkey has some kind of um, idea of, or, and visual idea of, of these sites cuts uh, both ways, right? So for, for some, uh, it may mean that, oh, they already know what happened fully, right? Because they, they've seen the footage, right? So it's at that kind of quite uh, problematic uh, faith, in the fact that, you know, something that is visually documented um, is subject to the same idea of truth, right? Uh, But for others, um, also, it actually um, means that um, they have a kind of um, material framework, materially charged framework, uh, and a mental image of it in their minds within which they can situate uh, the experiences that they have in the present. And how, you know, they can draw these kind of qualitative uh, connections between what they're experiencing during something like a commemoration, right, Um, where barricades are set up in Sivas, right? And uh, they can then say, well, um, how about, you know, the barricades that were not set up? at this very site during the arson attack which uh, could have prevented the arsonists from you know setting uh, the place uh, ablaze right so um, so it's both a potential I'd say and a limitation that these kind of events have been um, widely visually mediated.
1: Mm -hmm. Indeed and you know, you mentioned how spaces were mediated. So I want to ask you more about how you mediated space, so to speak, through your positionality. Um, and, you know, I was struck really with uh, this quote from the book where you take positionality as not only a form of being, but a form of doing and relating that's ultimately shaped by the agency of your interlocutors. So I'm curious about what positionality came to mean to you Throughout the book and throughout your time across these sites?
2: Yeah, thank you for that question. And this is really, really uh, important coming from an anthropologist uh, like yourself as well. And I've obviously learned a great deal from anthropologists, right, in uh, thinking about what one's positionality m- might mean uh, for one's uh, research. Um, still, as you kind of alluded to, um, I find that the focus of debates on fieldwork positionality um, <clears throat> tends to be on who people are rather than um, what they do, right? And sometimes this is kind of like a question of, you know, um, where people come from, et cetera, which I kind of discuss also in the book. So the, the kind of question of where one is from and who one is uh, obviously uh, uh, kind of linked to what one does, there's no doubt about that. <laughs> uh, but I think I fear the question about origins, essentially, you know, this is a question about origins, right? The question of, you know, who you are, where you come from. I fear that it often overshadows the one about uh, doing, the question about doing. In my fieldwork, I was, of course, repeatedly asked, you know, where I'm from, Um, As someone who's neither Kurdish uh, nor Alevi, um, I actually never felt this question signified a constraint. Uh, I felt that rather it kind of helped folks to map me onto geographies that they are familiar with. Um, And of course, in using the word mapping, I I use it quite literally and I discuss it in, in the book as well. I'm thinking spatially here, right? So once interlocutors were able to map me quite literally onto a familiar geography the focus of our conversation would shift to what we do what we're interested in doing and um, often this was actually the reason why i was there to talk to them in the first place i was there to talk to them because they were again f- filmmakers because they were uh photographers because they were campaigners actively campaigning to turn sites of violence into museums so that i was actually interested in their work as what one may call commemorative workers, right? So um, as such, they were also interested in my own work, uh, how I approached the topic. Uh, More difficult for me uh, was the question, more difficult than that is the question of where I'm from, was the question of what I was there to contribute. I was asked, you know, what new light uh, I could possibly shed on a subject that's already been extensively researched. And the fact is that, yeah, indeed, uh, many of these communities and their members have actually written books about, say, the Sivas massacre, the Diabroca prison. There's extensive kind of community literature, activist literature on these kind of subjects. So the question is totally valid. Uh, and I was asked this the whole time. And in response, I would simply expose my, my you know, methodological premise to to uh, folks, and I would say you know that I ac- acknowledge that a lot of work has been done, uh, and the debate on these sites of violence are really kind of is really extensive, but um, I found that space um, um, could be taken more of a uh, taken as more of a departure point right uh, and this was this kind of response that I gave which was about methodology really uh, was really welcomed by many of my interlocutors who would then go on to uh, use me as a sounding board for their rough ideas on architectures of commemoration so they really kind of agreed often that that this was kind of a missing perspective so really it's it, it, that kind of section on positionality that you're referring to comes out of these kind of conversations where I really um, encountered the work, the importance of the work that that one does, rather than uh, simply where one is from or uh, who one is.
1: Yeah, that is really, really important. And I also feel like often, you know, what we do during fieldwork uh, tends to be sidelined, which really informs the work itself. Um, and, you know, this brings me to my next question, um, which builds on, you know, my question on agency of your interlocutors, right? Like towards the end of the book, you share an instance where you were expelled, expelled from your field sites, one of your field sites. Um, and I'm, you know, very curious about, you know, how you came to sharing this instance, first of all, and then how it informed your empirical and methodological thinking around victimhood and public space.
2: I wanted to include uh, this instance from my fieldwork for, I guess, two reasons. The first was to nuance uh, what, at the time, was you know the mainstream image, globally speaking, uh, that Turkey had um, in the two, early 2010s. Still, where analysts and commentators across the political spectrum. Um, uh, were saying that Turkey is a beacon of democracy in the Middle East, uh, et cetera, et cetera. And now, actually, uh, you know, and since the late 2010s, we seem to have switched to the exact opposite extreme, where Turkey is a political hell, right? So my point in sharing this kind of expulsion story, uh, where someone who is a researcher, who is uh, as seemingly unmarginalized as myself, uh, managed to be able to be expelled (laughs) from a field site at a time when Turkey was globally seen as a beacon of democracy in the Middle East. And even um, as I had already been given permission to work in the building, um, um my point in sharing this kind of um, um expulsion story is to show that um n- neither political hells nor political paradises don't exist as such for everyone uh, in a given political context and that um, and and that they have again uneven kind of uh um, consequences implications for for different uh people um listeners will be able to find uh, you know, further details of the, of the expulsion itself in the book, of course. But um, to come to the second reason why I wanted to share this kind of expulsion story um, was to show how even the most uh, restrictive moments during fieldwork can serve as opportunities for uh, knowledge production. And uh, how field workers um, actually can learn from interlocutors not only as um, empirical sources, but also methodological teachers. So this has to do with how I followed up on my expulsion by writing and submitting an official letter to uh, the governorship nine months after um, the event itself, where I kind of recapped the entire episode uh, of my expulsion and demanded that my access to the building be reinstated. The reply I received uh, six months after um, Um, ended with a rejection but also actually elaborated on the science and culture center project and its main commemorative um, kind of centerpiece that is the memory corner it kind of effectively served as the first ever publicly accessible and official record of the authorities rationale behind why they transformed the building because this kind of the document hasn't been released about this building. The building was actually transformed quite secretively. It never was actually um, uh, inaugurated ceremonially, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Going back to again this kind of idea of this processuality, uh, this kind of provisionality being a mechanism of power onto itself. Um, so they said in their letter to me, in which they rejected my my uh, kind of um, demand uh, or my appeal. They said, and I quote a memory corner has been constituted inside the building to the memory of the saddening events that took place here that the entire country would rather not remember. So in saying that the entire country wouldn't want to remember this, uh, this atrocity, they effectively um, uh, gave a record of, of how the authorities identify those uh, kind of committed to remembering this atrocity as the nation's other right? So you could see how this kind of communication around my expulsion actually, again, served as a kind of knowledge production opportunity in its own right. Now... What, what's also interesting, and, and this is what, where we come back to your question of agency and how, how one might actually learn from interlocutors methodologically, not only kind of approach them as uh, sources of you know, data, but, but, but, but actually learn from their politics of methodology as well, right? So in deciding to embark on this kind of written correspondence with the authorities, I, um, in effect, adopted um, <clears throat> what I call in the book, uh, the memory activist's insistence on rational, critical methods. So what does this mean? So I find much of the kind of work on, on commemoration, on protest, etc., cetera, um, is geared towards or kind of almost idealizes perf- performance, sponta- spontaneity. So uh, a lot of the literature references how you know <clears throat> groups just come up in, in public space, stage a protest, they interrupt linear temporality, et cetera, which obviously is crucial. But what I found in, in the field was also the importance of sustained, committed, uh, kind of longer-standing work of organizing and mobilizing alongside uh, direct action, alongside spontaneous performance, right? So activists uh, were using ra- what I call rational, critical methods, this kind of sustained work of organizing, mobilizing. Uh, in for instance, insisting that uh, state-sponsored memorial museums be built at sites of violence, uh, despite their awareness, you know, of the the political limitations of you know memorial museums. You know, memorial museums. You know, they're aware. Activists are aware that memorial museums aren't perfect as a kind of type of as a commemorative type. Right? Uh, they have their problems, but um, but still, um, they were doing what I would call. Um, campaigning for what you would want to take down, right? (laughs) So in in, in insisting on memorial museums, right? So um, public space, their attitude towards notions of public space, similarly kind of uh, twofold, right? So on the one hand, obviously, they're using the kind of whatever potentials exist of existing models of public space uh, to make the most of them as social spatial infrastructures but also problematizing the idealization of existing models of public space, right? So here one can think of specific examples like lawsuits uh, that um, activists filed against the memory corner uh, because actually the memory corner includes a kind of all-encompassing name list uh, that includes Two people who were known to have been among the crowd that surrounded the arson atta- uh, the the the hotel the, the during the arson attack, right? So there's this kind of idea that they have, the authorities have, in creating this memory corner, uh, including these two names, that they do not discriminate between the dead because they see as uh, they see the arson attack as a kind of plot against the entire nation, right? So um, uh, activists have. I've actually filed lawsuits against this memory corner, which is quite a boring, you know, quite a bureaucratic kind of thing to do. Right. But it's important. It's important. And, you know, there's a lot of talk in, especially in, in Turkey right now. Oh, like the law doesn't work. Courts don't work. But still, I really appreciate and I think it's really important, this insistence right, on using whatever kind of legal mechanism is, is, is out there. As, again, as a knowledge production mechanism, you can then use the knowledge that that kind of mechanism produces uh, for your political kind of uh, project. So this is what I kind of learned from. I think uh, in adopting this insistence on rational critical methods, my friends and family told me, "Why are you writing this letter? Obviously, they're going to reject you. You know, obviously, and not only that, but also you're going to get yourself into further trouble, right?" I said, "No, I'm going to do this because this is what I've learned from uh, from you know um, the the activists that I that I worked among, right? And uh, this is this was my way of kind of adopting some of their rational critical methods." Um, and and and my way of showing how how yeah fieldworks can actually relate to interlocutors, not only as as data sources right, but also as actors with political methodological um, agency.
1: Indeed, and I think that loops back so nicely that you know as soon as you don't see um, people or places we work with as you know things to extract data from and. Re- build relationships. um, They also impact what you do, like the work that you do during field work, which is something you touched upon. So I really appreciated that. Uh, And, you know, we've spoken a bit about the future and the past. So my last question is, what is next for you? What are some new projects or questions or even classes that you're working on?
2: So... More recently, I've um, been exploring violence's links with ecology, uh, or exploring violence as an environmental question in the sense of the politics of ecology. And here, it's interesting how you mentioned extracting data, because I've actually started to work on extractivism. So part of my, <laughs> my work uh, is on uh, my work on um, uh, violence and ecology. On the implications of violence in ecology is about extractivism uh, and particularly in, in in Turkey's Kurdistan and uh, listeners can um, find out more about this by looking at rec- my recent articles in Antipode and transactions of the Institute of, of British Geographers. Um, uh, the basic kind of I guess position or argument there is that I try to show how extractivism Again, maybe going back to this kind of mythological discussion that we had is not only a question of or a matter of industries of extraction proper, like you know mining, but also uh, it's a question of visual and spatial cultural production. And also theorization of this production. So um, I finished uh, drafting, I just finished actually drafting uh, on this topic uh, what I hope will be my second English-language monograph, <laughs> which is kind of tentatively titled Aesthetics of Extractivism, Visual Ecologies of Violence and Agency uh, in Turkey's Kurdistan. So um, actually much of this book uh, is grounded in my collaborations, uh, kind of again resonating with the discussion, the conversation that we just had on on agency. I've tried to kind of uh, engage even more with with with um, interlocutors in in, in in field sites as as you know collaborators proper, uh, and I've been collaborating with um, uh, an artist uh, run organization, for instance, in uh, Ahmed uh, or Diyarbakir in Kurdish, which is the kind of you know uh, socio cultural and political heart of Turkey's Kurdistan. Um, and um, it's a, it's an organization called Loading uh, that was uh, set up by artists um, two contemporary artists called Jengis Tekin and Erkan Özgen. um and I've run uh, kind of workshops with them, various projects with them, kind of free of charge, open to uh, and, you know everyone who's who's able to apply. Um, I've um, also been working on you know, violence and ecology with a focus on the notion of emergency. So emergency rule uh, as something that obviously resonates with current discussions around climate change. You know, We speak of the climate emergency, but I also show how we must um, <clears throat> appraise uh, these kind of emphases on, clim- on the climate emergency in specific contexts with specific references to uh, kind of particular histories of emergency rule. Such as uh, in Turkey, particularly in Kurdish regions, right? So I co-edited recently uh, an anthology called "Architectures of Emergency in Turkey." That was published by I.B. Taurus and Bloomsbury. I co-edited that with uh, Pinar Aykac and Sevjan Arjan. Um, I actually going back to again interlocutors and, and fieldwork. I co-authored a chapter in that anthology with a, with someone who uh I consider obviously an interlocutor but also friend now, Hardam uh, Doral, who who's an Ahmed-based uh, architect and activist. and I've also collaborated with him to coordinate you know a free of charge uh, summer school in Ahmed. Um, so that kind of interest in, in, in, in collaborating with um, with interlocutors obviously continues. Uh, you know, I've published various other things on, on this idea of emergency. Um, and and how mainstream responses to environmental emergencies, um, um, especially in the context of disaster preparedness, are shaped by stately traditions of emergency rule. Um, what else? A collection of the essays I wrote in Turkish on the Anthropocene uh, was, uh, was published uh, recently, well, relatively recently, a year and a half ago now. Uh, it's called İklimin Esteti, uh, which kind of roughly translates as climate aesthetics. Um, and is apparently about to enter its second print run Um, so although (laughs) this book is absolutely worthless in terms of the performance metrics of neoliberal academia uh, I wanted to publish my thoughts in a language that my interlocutors and collaborators can understand (laughs) so again this is part of my modest attempt uh, to reciprocate some of the generosity they've uh, approached me with. And I hope to be able to continue uh, uh, doing uh, this kind of work in multiple languages uh, in spite of the challenges facing all of us academic workers who come from one place and try to survive in an altogether different one.
1: Well, on this (laughs) I don't know, rather sad... (laughs) (laughs) (laughs) but also (laughs) maybe a more real note. Um, (laughs) Thank you very much, Aray, for joining us and for your insights. I really enjoyed our conversation.
2: Thank you so much indeed for taking the time to engage with the book with such care and attention to detail and for being such a generous host.
1: Oh, of course. It was truly my pleasure. This is your host, Aliza this discussion of Victims of Commemoration, The Architecture and Violence of Confronting the Past in Turkey, published by Syracuse University Press in 2022, is brought to you by the New Books Network in association with the Mobilities and Methods app at the University of Illinois at Chicago. Thank you for listening.